Hello, all you beautiful people. This is Optimistically Depressed, and I am your host, Ruth McMullen. Thanks for taking the time to listen to my podcast. I'm going to be trying to change things up a little bit with my format, just really with how I handle the introductions. And I want you to give this a try for the first couple episodes, and then let me know what you think. If you have any pointers for how I can improve it, I would really love to hear that. If you have any encouraging notes, I'd love to hear those too. So any kind of feedback that you have for me, please bring it on. I'm going to start by actually giving you a quote that I uh, recently read. It's by Rumi. And it says, you have heard that every buried treasure has a snake guarding it. Kiss the snake to discover the treasure. And I think that that kind of describes what I do with Optimistically Depressed, what we do with Optimistically Depressed. People come on here and they share very vulnerable stories. And I think that there is a treasure in each of these stories. And the thing is, when (laughs) some of these stories are so vulnerable that we're hesitant to share them. I know that that's true with many stories in my life. And it's like kissing the snake. It's like it's like approaching the snake that's guarding the story that's guarding the wisdom that's hidden in this treasure. And you have to kiss that snake and then you discover the treasure. This wisdom that everyone has from each story that they have shared is so valuable and it's difficult to get to because we have to, we have to look at our fear. And not only do we have to look at our fear, we have to give it a kiss. We have to get intimate with it. And we've been raised to really believe that these fears are unhealthy and that they're wrong. And that's not true. Fear is a very natural part of living. Of course, there are situations that fear is unhealthy, like abusive situations. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about these everyday situations that fear is just a very natural reaction to have. And we need to just look at that and we need to sit with it become intimate with it, with it, and then we can access the treasure that it's guarding. So all of you that have come on the show, that's what you've done. You've faced that fear and then you've, you've gotten through it and you've shared these incredible stories with me and with all of the listeners here, with all of you out there. And it's, it helped improve our lives. It's helped, it has helped create this community where we can find healing And I'm so grateful to all of you for that. And if you want to be able to come on the show and share that story and share that treasure that you have, I would love to hear from you. You can reach me through Instagram. You can reach me through Twitter. You can reach me through Facebook. It's all optimistically depressed. You can also email me optimisticallydepressed86 at gmail.com. You can go to my website, optimisticallydepressed.com. You can send me a message through there. I would love to hear you. I'd love to be able to share some of your story because seriously, you have more wisdom than you even realize. Now I got to, uh, I got to have Mike Mousseau back on the show. I love that guy. He is so brave. And some of the stories that he shared have really not only opened my eyes, but it's helped me face a lot of stories that I have and like, and be able to be more brave about them and find healing through them. Seriously, his fearlessness is something that I'm so inspired by. And I'm, I feel really privileged to be able to have him on the show again. So this time he actually shared a little bit about his experience as a corrections officer. And it made me realize that a lot of this career, a lot of people who are in this career, they face really traumatic stuff. They suffer a lot to help bring 
safety to us and also to help these people who are going through obviously a terrible time in their lives be more comfortable and they they protect them too and it's just there's just so much about this that I just didn't know and I think that um I think that's really important that his story uh, from his experience in that role gets out there so that we can all hear and have a better better understanding of how it goes so um that's my little my little intro that's my little taste let me know what you think and uh, and now, without further ado, I'm just so excited to be able to reintroduce all of you to Mike Musso. Mike. Hi. I can't believe it. You're back for round three. Round three. That's so cool. And we were just talking about, before we hit the record button, we were just talking about how Mike was able to join me for every phase of the Optimistically Depressed podcast meaning. We start off in the dining room, and Mike was my first ever guest on the podcast Optimistically Depressed. Then I moved into the closet, (laughs) 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 and then Mike came and joined me there, and then I moved into the spare bedroom turned studio downstairs and here you are here i am was how many people did the podcast in the dining room did that last long no it didn't last long it didn't take us very long to be like okay the sound quality is terrible in here (laughs) (laughs) and then who was it um one of my guests one of my guests suggested doing it in the closet okay and then and because he i remember it was a guy i cannot remember who specifically it was but he was just like yeah because it's not gonna be bouncing around in there because it's immediately dead yeah and then it was just like yeah sound quality was great no room yeah (laughs) (laughs) no room and you sat with your head in close close (laughs) (laughs) and now here we are you wave your arms around great sound quality lots of room right it works feels pretty good how are you doing? I'm doing really good. Yeah. Really good. Good. <laughs> you've gotten a you've gotten a new job. I do. Yeah. And how is that going? Really good. It was stressful trying to like settle into it, but it's so much easier on the head. Oh. And that, <laughs> that was like the biggest thing. That makes such a difference. Such a difference when you're yeah. not like taking that like mental drain every day. Yeah. And I knew, like, I knew working at the jail was unhealthy, and I knew it was causing me, like, a lot of added anxiety, but I didn't realize, like, how much it Mm. was until I, like, because even when I wasn't working, like, I was still anxious, I was still worried about, like, what would happen out in public, and this and that, but it wasn't until, like, I actually quit and started a new job where I was, like, whoa. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And then you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, that previous job really was pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. oh, wow, this really is that much better. Oh, my gosh. I've actually, like I, like, I can only try to imagine what it was like to go through what you have been through with your employment um, at the jail. Yeah. I can only try to compare it to other positions that I've had, like jobs that I've had outside of the house where Mm -hmm. it's like, this is just so painful. Like you go into work every day and you're like, this is just sucking my soul dry. Yeah. And I mean, so before the jail, I did a different security job 
And I was miserable there. And for the longest time, at that time, I was still living at home. So my mom was like, well, if you're miserable, like, just find a new job, blah, 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 blah. And I just, I wouldn't. Like, I was comfortable. Like, I didn't really know what else I wanted or what else I could do. Um, but I knew I was just, like, miserable. And it got to the point where I completely, like, burnt myself out. I had, like, a mental breakdown. And it was like, okay, yeah, maybe I should leave. And mm-hmm. I did. And then I started at the jail. And after a couple years, it was like, okay, like, this is terrible. I'm doing terrible. I need a way out. Mm-hmm. And so kind of started the whole journey of, like, transitioning, not only out of the job, but out of, like, the lifestyle of the job. What do you mean when you say the lifestyle of the job? So being in jail which is a really weird thing to say (laughs) (laughs) not only are the people who like live there institutionalized but like as a correctional officer you're also institutionalized because your day is so like structured like um you start work at seven o'clock eight o'clock like the doors open and like people can come out if they're awake nine o'clock breakfast uh 9 30 10 like daily inspection and it just goes all day so your whole day is a routine um but then you're also so used to i guess like the chaos that's in jail so it's like um yeah it just you come home and you just like you don't turn off so Mm. i could come home and i like people have a bad day at work and i kind of just like grumble about it and drink a beer and go to bed or whatever but it's like i come home and it's just like if i saw some shit that day then like that's what i focus on like i drink a beer it doesn't go away i go to bed i could have nightmares about it or if i'm on a day off and i go out in public it's like okay like there's a big group of people over here or if we're at a restaurant like i have to be able to see the door like it's just wow all these yeah or yeah so for example like if we're out in a restaurant i had to sit in a place where like i could see the door or else i would have a panic attack or if i was driving on a day off and somebody was behind me for too long i'd be paranoid that i was being followed and i'd do laps until they took off somewhere and I knew that I could go home in peace. Like it. What? So you're saying you, if you can't see the door, you'd have a panic attack. What was going through your mind that would cause it was just, if anything were to happen, I knew like where my exit was. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that would make sense because you're constantly living in like survival mode. Yeah. Like in, a day room we would have one door and that was our exit door so if anything happened and you had to go out like you had to know where that door was so it carried over into the personal life if i was out anywhere i need to know where i could get out if anything were to happen wow yeah and do you find that that stuff carries over into your current employment no okay. um the way Yeah, so, like, my job now is so low-key. 
I think after it's like the first week I was there, I walked out to my car and I was like, shit, like I didn't even look over my shoulder to make sure like anybody was watching me get to my car. Like I drove out and I wasn't worried that somebody was following me out of the parking lot. Like it's, it was weird. (laughs) And it's still like, it still took a while to kind of just like get used to the hustle and bustle because I'm used to that, but I'm also used to like a very violent and chaotic hustle and bustle. So having like streams of people come at me all the time or like having metal detectors and alarms go off, like you're still like, okay, like what's going on? Who has what? Like kind mm-hmm. of thing. But once you kind of like get in the rhythm and groove at it, it all, it just levels out and you get used to it. But Wow. Yeah. How long would you say it takes you to get used to a new rhythm? I think it all depends on how long you are in an old one. Mm. Um, I think in my case, it helped. It helped that I wasn't working like when I got this new job, like I didn't just transfer out of the jail into um, like into the airport. I was on stress leave for six months I think Mm -hmm. November to May so it was kind of like it's hard because even when I wasn't working and I was off like I didn't even have a rhythm at home I was a mess Mm -hmm. I wasn't taking care of myself I wasn't eating I rarely went out or saw my friends like it was just I was in a funk because of work and then I stopped working and didn't really have anything to do to get rid of my funk so I just kind of like wallowed in it but now that I started work and I'm like I have like a schedule I have a routine but it's like a productive routine Mm. so like I get up I know I'm going to work so I get ready I have breakfast I take a shower like I just just yeah there's a lot of baby steps in the process of getting ready to work but I knew I had to do those baby steps in order to go to work and that was something I had stopped doing for so long and found it so hard to like get back into with no I guess like real motivation yeah you know okay it's interesting that we're talking about this because um as most of my listeners and you know uh, the past few months I've been thrown out of my routine because yeah. of some things that have happened back uh, in Ontario with my family. And it's, it's strange how when you're thrown out of your rhythm, you're trying to like, you're trying to find a new rhythm. Like there's something like your life has changed. Yeah. So then it's like, you're trying to like get your footing and understand like, what is my life now? Yeah. What does it look like? What do I like? And then you're reassessing everything. Like, what do I really want to accomplish? Yeah. Who do I want to be? And then you're trying to rediscover your rhythm. Yeah. And so did you find that when you were home finishing up your stress leave? Did you find that you were able by the end to find a new rhythm to understand a deeper part of who you are? No. Um, it actually didn't start until after I started working because I knew, like, 
it's weird because it was like I'd be home by myself and like if I wanted to go out it'd be like okay like I should probably like do something but at the same time like I'm not going out with anyone I'm not really doing anything like super specific that requires like a lot of effort to like either do or put into myself to do so it was just like fuck it I'll go to the bank in my pajamas because I don't I can't be bothered to like put on clothes Mm. or I'm not going anywhere for the next few days so I'm just not gonna shower like it was just and it sucked because like I knew that everything I was doing was unhealthy but it was like I wasn't there was nothing there to like genuinely motivate me to fix that so I just didn't do it but when I started this job it was like okay like I'm going to be a fully functional like member of society again I need to look good I need to not look good but like I need to be presentable yeah I need to be hygienic like I need to like be who I am in this new job or chapter of my life or whatever I want to call it so that was kind of like my motivation to get back to it I guess yeah and it's I know like even when I first started like I was still kind of in that funk and like on top of the anxieties of starting a new job it's like it was still hard to get out of that routine so there would still be days where like I'd go consecutively without showering but then I'd come home and be like oh my god like how did nobody say anything to me or like why am I like this I'm like I'd literally just get home and jump in the shower but then it once it turned into like more of a routine it was like okay like I get up at this time I start making breakfast or like food for what I need for the day and I jump in the shower and that was that and then I go to work and my job might not be like a super fancy high-paying job but it's sweet I mean I like it it's well like it's an important job yeah and it's like for me it's like the headspace that I'm in while I'm at work and then while I'm outside of work is just it's literally like a whole different world like a whole different me okay expand on that (laughs) so yeah like Oh, it's hard because being in the jail, it's such, um, I had the perfect word to describe it earlier and I forgot, but it's such like a negative, like just such a negative environment. And in my experience there, there was so little, um, emphasis or importance really on us as officers and our well-being. So after a while, it was just kind of like, okay, like they don't care about us. They don't care about me. Like, am I really that important? Mm. And you feel like that at work. And I mean, with the work situation and how much we work. Like I, when I first started, I was working like a hundred hours every two weeks. So that's literally like 80% of my life in that two weeks I'm at work. Wow. So then 
after a while, it just weighs on you and you're like, okay, like if something were to happen to me, and I remember like I got to the point where I was like, if something were to happen to me, like who would care? Like I spent all this time in a job where like there are people above me whose part of their responsibility is to like look after me. And if something were to happen, um, like I don't matter. Like it's just, yeah, it's just another day, I guess. Like it's something that you should expect working in corrections. And so that carried over into like my personal life and my personal headspace. So I had to try and remind myself that like if anything were to happen to me at work, like I have friends who care about me. I have like Kirsten, my girlfriend who cares about me, like my parents care about me. So like if something were to happen, there are people who care about me and that's like the important part of it. Um, and yeah, it just, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that's like, I like how you actually mentioned like, yeah, there are people who do care about you. And because I find that it's really easy, especially like I know for myself, it's easy to forget that there are people that actually like care about your well-being. Yeah. And if you weren't around anymore, they would like they would be affected by that. Yeah. And on top of like on top of that, like, yes, there's a certain um, risk, I guess, of working in corrections that something could happen. But it's also like what you see or like, yeah, what you see or have the chance of seeing while working in corrections that has a lasting impact on your health or your mental well-being. Mm. Um, after I started, and I mean, like, I have out or I have, yeah, like, outside depression, anxiety. Um, before I started at the jail, I was also diagnosed with traits of PTSD. But as my career went forward, like obviously it got worse. Um, but there would, there've been things that I see that like to everybody else is like mind boggling. Like they're like, what the fuck? Like how, how can you deal with that? And to mm -hmm. me, it's just like, a normal everyday conversation like it's it's just you adapt to it so much it's just like your new normal when anybody who lives like that normal nine to five job like never in a million years would ever think about like seeing the things that you've seen yeah yeah it's strange I've been I've been thinking a lot about how people basically live in different worlds. Yeah. And so this is like, this was a world that you lived in yeah. that other people can't imagine. Yeah. Like when I first started, all of my friends were like, why? Like, are you crazy? Like, why would you put yourself through this? And it's like, the money's good. It's what I wanted. Not initially what I wanted to do, but like what I decided I wanted to do. So I stick with it until I either found something better or wanted a change in my life. And then things happen throughout the course of my career where it's like, damn, like, is this really how I want to spend like the next 30 years of my life? Like, um, 
and there would be, yeah, stuff that I've seen where I'd come home and again, like I would just tell Kirsten the most out late. Wow. Can't speak the most (laughs) like outlandish stuff. And she'd be like, what the fuck? Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And then she'd like tell me about the day at the spa where some lady got grouchy at her or spilt wine on a $10,000 rug because that's a real world problem. But it's like, Hmm. yeah, it was a weird contrast, I guess, to the normal lifestyle that most people. Okay. So I got it. Yeah. Okay. I got another question for you then. Yeah. Because you're saying that like these things happen and she'd be like, are you okay? And you'd be like, oh yeah. Yeah. Were you? No. <laughs> <laughs> yes and no. I mean, like, afterwards I would be. Um, because, like... How how long afterwards? I don't know. A couple hours, maybe. Yeah? I just kind of, like, take the time. Uh, I don't know. It. I think as my career went on, and I say career, it was four years, like... Oh. But as my time as a correctional officer went on, it would, like, it would weigh on me a lot more. Like, I remember one of the very first calls... Um, I went to was, I won't go into super details, but it was incredibly gruesome, um, like straight out of a horror movie, tons of blood. Um, and it was just like, whoa, like this is wild. Like this is what I've signed up for. Um, and it was just kind of, I kind of rationalized it in the way of like, this is corrections, like, this is what I signed up for kind of thing. And then as the, as my time went on and the years went by, we'd respond to a call and I'd be running to it and I'd be like, okay, like, is this the call that sends me over the edge? Because, Mm -hmm. like, when we first get that call, we don't know what it is. It could be a fight. It could be a stabbing. It could be somebody hanging. Like, we're just running into the unknown. And then... Um, it, uh, one of the, the calls that I responded to the most always ended up being suicide attempts. So it would just be like, okay, like, is this, is what I'm seeing like the thing that's going to push me over the edge or make me snap or how many of these more can I see until I hit my breaking point and Mm. I don't know what to do anymore. Mm-hmm. And then did you hit that limit? No. Um, it wasn't until there was an altercation last summer. Um, a fight broke out. It was part of it was in the paper. Um, they said that an inmate was stabbed, but what they left out was that an officer was almost stabbed and that officer was me. So while the brawl broke out, I ran in, tried to break it up, started wrestling with somebody. And during that moment, another inmate came up and started stabbing the guy that I was wrestling with. So that happened. Um, I finished my shift and after that shift, I went off for a couple months just to, kind of process what happened um i saw my counselor who i had seen the entirety of my career um, and we just kind of 
work through it. And for me, it was like, it was weird because I still think about it and I'm like, wow, like, did I really like react to that properly? Because we didn't find out the stabbing happened until like after everything was already said and done. Um, so. So so you didn't realize that as you're wrestling that guy, it was happening? No, I just like, I was wrestling. I saw a body run at us, fists flying. So I was like, okay, like, I don't want to get punched. I don't want this guy to get like punched even more. So I'm just going to try and get us away. And that's what happened. And then everything kind of settled down. And I even had a conversation with a guy after that being like, what the hell? Like, why did this happen kind of thing? And back and forth, whatever. He got brought down to isolation or SAG or whatever you want to call it. And then everybody started their paperwork. And that's when people came up and were like, yeah, there's going to be a lot more paperwork. (laughs) But my rationale behind the whole thing was I didn't see like Buddy come at us with a shank or a knife or whatever it was he had. Um, It just like I found out after the fact. um, So there wasn't there wasn't that like traumatization that I figured there would be if I had like seen the weapon firsthand. Um, so afterwards it was just kind of like, okay, that happened. It could have been really bad, but it wasn't. And I'm okay. And in my own little world of me and my safety, like that's the most important thing. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I went off and we had a third party, third party company that takes care of us when we're off, which is rarely the case. So um, they ended up calling me back saying that my time off, my stress leave wasn't supported because they didn't feel the need for me to be off work. Okay. (laughs) See, that's astounding. Yeah. What exactly qualifies you if that doesn't qualify you to be off work what does like physical injury and medication physical injury and medication what do you mean like what part of like if you go off on stress leave if you're not medicating there's a very high chance that you won't be supported i see okay so that that puzzles me further yeah because sure, like some people, that's their the route for them. Yeah, exactly. But it's not the only no. route. And I've been like that since I was a kid. Like when the anxiety first started hitting me in high school, um, my doctor tried to prescribe me medication. I was so on and off about it. I hated it. I hated the thought of relying on something to make me function as how like I feel like I'm supposed to function. And then when I first started at the jail coming off of like the last job and my mental breakdown and stuff, I was on medication again and I took it, I think for a couple months and it was still, there was a, we went out for training one week and I ended up forgetting my medication and I kind of realized that I like, I didn't need it. Like a good day of being on medication was just like a low day being off of it. So I feel like if I could still like function and bring myself back up, like without taking medication, then I'd probably be fine. 
How do you bring yourself up without being on medication? Therapeutic activities. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way that you... Is, I don't know. It's, it's weird. Like, I just... If I'm in a funk, I try and talk myself out of it. Or if I can't do that, then it's like, okay. Like, I'm either going to go to the gym and just try and, like, work out of it. Or I'm going to go out and take pictures and just, like, do something that I have full control over. And that way I get in my groove doing that and whatever I'm feeling just kind of fucks off for a while. So a lot of it has to do then with, like, reminding yourself of what you enjoy. Yeah. And, like, so when that incident happened and I was off and I was seeing my therapist, she was like, these are what you need to do. And for like, there was a long time after I got my shoulder surgery and like into my career corrections where I was getting more and more depressed and anxious, I stopped working out. And then because of that, I was putting on terrible weight and I was becoming more and more self-conscious and more and more miserable about how I looked. And that just, everything just started piling up. Mm. And it just got to the point where I wasn't going to the gym anymore. And that was like the one staple in my life that like, made me happy so when I was off that was like the biggest thing that my therapist was touching on was you need to go out and do these things that make you happy just to try and keep yourself above water because she always compared it when I went when I was off work that I would go off when my cup was full and then I would take care of myself until my cup was like 80% full and it was like okay like I can take on life and things and work again and then I'd go back to work but then I'd go back to work with my cup 80% full and so I'd have that 20% until I hit my breaking point again and I'd have to figure my shit out like I would never give myself the opportunity to completely empty my cup and take on life take on more yeah I haven't okay the cup being full I haven't seen I haven't heard it being put in the way where it's actually a negative thing to have your cup full but it makes sense because it's like my cup is full of everything that I can handle right yeah. now yeah yeah so I mean I would that's when I was off in the summertime last summer that's what I would be doing I'd go out like whenever I could muster up that energy and that motivation I'd go out to the gym or I'd go and take photos or whatever and my caseworker at the time was like, okay, well, if you have the ability to do these things, these physical activities, you have the ability to go back to work. And there was no gray area. It was just black and white. And So they have, it sounds to me like they have a pretty unhealthy view when it comes to mental health. Absolutely. It was, yeah, it was torturous. Um it was actually incredibly counterproductive because the stress that they would cause correctional officers, like if they needed time off, would only add on to the stress that they were dealing with, like from work or whatever it was that caused them to go off. So the time off that we're taking to like better ourselves and make ourselves healthy enough to go back to work is being taken over, I guess, for lack of a better terms, by the stresses of this third-party company. Because when they told me that, I questioned it, saying, well, do you have any 
like medical documentation because they make you go to your doctor to fill all this out so they have a basis of like what it is you're dealing with from my doctor and they were like well no that's not our job and I'm like okay so when we spoke when I first came off and I told you that like what I was doing to try and improve like my quality of life that is what you're taking and using it against me to support your decision to not support me being off like they didn't take any medical information from your doctor that they had to be like okay well he's already been off three times in the last four years for mental health issues maybe this is like a real thing Mm. um yeah it was couldn't believe it like and then when i finally did go back to work um and because i couldn't afford to stay off um i went back to work for financial reasons they came back to me with their final decision of like non-support and they were like by the way the six thousand dollars that we paid out to you over the two months you were off you owe us back so i'm like okay like now i was off for stress because of my job um i fell behind on my bills because i wasn't making as much money as I would if I were to work. Mm. So I fell behind on all my bills. I'm now back to work against my doctor's discretion because I need to pay my bills and I need to be able to live. And now you're telling me I owe you money because you don't believe I'm mentally ill. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And this is like... Is this something that is a a job specific to where, like, the location that you were working? Or is this, like, do you know, is this what a lot of correctional officers face? This is what a lot of correctional officers face. Like, short-term disability was huge when I was there, and it is still a massive problem now. Like, I still have friends at the jail, and... I get updates every day that so many people are off. And these are like high double digit numbers of people that are off. But on like a global scale, um, correctional officers have the highest rate of divorce, the highest rate of substance abuse, the highest rate of PTSD, and the highest rate of suicide in any first responder field. So, so... There's a real problem happening. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, I could be, the last time I checked, I think that information is correct. Like, it might vary, like, top three, maybe. But this is, like... Yeah, this yeah. is this is serious. And so you would think that, like, obviously, if you have access to this information, this third-party company has access Absolutely. to this information. Absolutely, yeah. Like, you can Google suicide rates for correctional officers, and you get umpteen articles about how big of a problem this is worldwide and i mean even like the biggest ones are in the states because their prison population is so large um yeah it's wild so this is just this is so troubling and confusing and i don't know very much about this field yeah but and not a lot of people do Because it's like correctional officers here, or 
I don't know if it's just Nova Scotia or in Canada, aren't considered first responders, which is a mind-blowing fact on its own. Like, if something happens in a jail, who calls 911? Us. Who performs CPR before the paramedics arrive? Us. Who puts out fires if inmates start fires? Us. Who does riot control if something happens before the police show up? Us. Like, it's just, we are there, it's what we do, but we're not a first responder. So that's mind-boggling. Um, I completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> that's fine. It will come back and cut me off when it does. What was the question? Sorry. No, no. That's, uh, so we were talking about how uh, across Canada. Oh, sorry. Yes, where I was going. Um, but corrections is like the back burner of society. Like nobody knows about it. Like when something happens in the paper, you see police responded to such and such and arrested so many people for a shooting or breaking in or, or a drug bust or whatever, or there was an accident on the highway caused by a drug driver and the fire department and EHS showed up. Okay, so what happens to those people after like the police deal with them and the newspaper comes out? Like They come to us, but where's the recognition for correctional officers when something happens in a jail like mm. in the in my experience while i was there the like you would have newspaper article after newspaper article being like guards arrested in burnside for bringing in drugs or so and so or not so and so but like such and such a drug was found in burnside and then you read the comments on those articles and it's like okay well all the guards are just as crooked as the people in there, or maybe the guards shouldn't be bringing drugs into the prison, or maybe they should do a better job of searching them when we come in there. And it's like, we can only do so much. Like, the police can only do so much, or EHS can only do so much. Like, you don't have an article come out about a fatality in a car crash and people commenting being like, oh my God, the paramedics should have done a better job or maybe they should have better training. Like it's, that, that mentality is isn't there. And so that goes back to like feeling worthless because not only do you, like not only do people really like know or are educated about what you do, but when only the bad press like goes out to the public, you have all these people ripping on you and you have all these people just making these uneducated assumptions about who you are as a person or who you are as an employee. Um, and it just, and you have no voice because we mm -hmm. work for like a provincial entity like, we can't speak out about what goes on because of a, lo a lot of it is classified information. So you just take all these punches and you can't do anything about it. Oh, wow. Yeah, so you're getting, you're getting pressure from all sides. Yeah. And... Like, we're getting pressure from, like, our job because it's, like, it's such a high-risk thing. And we're getting pressure from, like 
the management who runs the operation or who runs the facility on how to better like do our jobs. And then when articles come out about something that we have absolutely no control over, we have all these all the pressure from the public saying like what big pieces of shit we are for just trying to do our job and like not like sure we're keeping them safe because we have these people housed here but now we're also trying to keep all these murderers and sex offenders and drug dealers safe because that's our job wow right like, it we these people could be out on the streets but they're not and if they were out on the streets Joe Blow down the road wouldn't think twice about whether or not Buddy's strung up in a ditch or in an alley or whatever downtown, but because they're in jail, we do. Like, right. And that goes over everybody's heads. Yeah, it's things. That's such a good point. Like, these are things that people don't talk about and don't know. Yeah. So. How, like, so then this is such a broken system in many areas. How is some, how do you go about trying to solve this problem? I don't know if it ever will get solved. It's, uh, because it's not, it's hard because, like, once you're in the system and you see, like, how it works, you begin to lose faith. And pretty well, like, everything. Um, and again, goes going back to just, like, how much this job weighs on you. Um, you see the worst of the worst people on a daily basis. So it's, and sometimes it could be people that, like, you're best friends with on the outside. Or a friend of a friend knows, and they come in for attempted murder or armed robbery or something. And you're like, damn, like anybody could be like that kind of thing and then you see um like the lack of empathy that we had from our management team and you're like damn okay well maybe i really don't matter like if something were to happen again and then you lose faith in the justice system which is the biggest thing because like that's the thing that's supposed to keep like us as people safe but then you have people coming in for drug possession. Like, I remember when I first started, there was a 64-year-old man who was dying of cancer and was sentenced, like, four years because his medical or his medicinal growth application got denied or whatever. But he already had everything, so we started growing weed. Arrested. Four years. And then you have people coming in serving weekends for sex offenses. And it's like what is wrong with our world? Like, what is wrong with our justice system? Like, how do you even, like, justify making a decision like that and, like, being all right with it? Like, I'm not even part of that decision, and it, like, rattles me to my core. Wow. And it's just all these different aspects of the job just build and build and build and build and build, and then you're at a point where you just don't know what to do with yourself. And there was a point that I really wanted to hit on because up until 
I was probably like halfway through like my time at the jail, mental health was a joke to a lot of people that I worked with. Mm. Um, and I remember specifically there was one officer who it was well known by people that he had like a full-blown mental breakdown. And to everybody else, it was like the butt of all jokes behind his back. It was a laughing matter. And you go in there and you're like, you guys are supposed to be like family. Like we're here more than we see each other at the jail more than we see our family at home. Like you guys are supposed to have us no matter what. And you're laughing at somebody because of like a mental illness. Like that's not cool. Like I went in there already predisposed with depression, with anxiety, with traits of PTSD. Like, and now I can't talk to anybody about it because you're going to talk about me behind my back. Like, it is. It was wild. And it wasn't until um, marijuana really was like on its way to become legalized and dispensaries started popping up and it was like readily available, like outside of the streets um, where people like really decided that they were going to talk about like how fucked they were. Like there was a huge portion of people who worked there that were so dependent on sleeping pills or alcohol because they were so messed up that they couldn't sleep or they couldn't deal with whatever it was they were dealing with. I remember having a conversation to one guy who was in his early mid thirties, relatively fit, good looking guy refused to believe that he had a panic attack one day because he didn't believe he had anxiety. And I'm like, dude, like if you walk up a set of stairs and you collapse because you're winded and you're convinced you're going to die, you're having a panic attack. Like, I don't care what you say about whether or not you feel anxious. That's exactly what a panic attack is. Mm -hmm. And it's just, that's, that was the culture of the career for so long. And do you think that's due to a lack of education on mental health or do you think it's because they feel like they can't have that because they see it as a weakness? I feel it might be a little bit of both, um, more so that it's considered a weakness. Mm. Because, I mean, like, in that career, you can't show weakness. Mm -hmm. Like, you have to be, regardless of whether you're 5'2", 180 pounds, and the guy on the other side of the door is 6'2", and 250 pounds, like, you can't show weakness. You can't be weak to that guy, or he'll never respect you. Like, being that dominant person is your survivability in the career. So then how did you find that, how that affected you personally? Because like, I of course don't know you. I mean, we've been talking about how that affects you personally. Yeah. But I mean, I, I would say I know you fairly well now. Yeah. And I would Duh. not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I would never, like I would never describe you as a person who feels the need to dominate every no. room. And like, I think it, it comes with a balance, which a lot of people do have, but like in any career you're going to have, or like any job, you're going to have like those bad eggs who are just kind of like, all right, well, you're in jail because you're a piece of shit and that's how I'm going to treat you. And then okay. for me, it's more just like you have your area of respect 
they have theirs. It's kind of just like a dance until you can meet in the middle and you respect one another, and that's that. My biggest thing, and a lot of where my anxiety on the job came from, um, like aside from seeing really messed up stuff, was that I'm not great with confrontation. It gives me terrible anxiety. Like mm-hmm. if I have to go toe-to-toe with somebody and I have to raise my voice and I know it's like a heated thing, fuck, I panic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but in that job, you can't because that is like if something goes awry and somebody gets in your face, like you can't back down. Like you have to give it back and you have to be the person that walks away. So it's like somebody and it doesn't matter if it's directed at me or if it's two inmates fighting like as soon as I like put myself in that role and I would get aggressive with somebody it's like okay like out of these aside from these two guys like going toe to toe out of these 30 guys who's going to jump me if I jump in kind of thing because I'm making myself that dominant figure in a room full of dominant men so it's whoa it's a big power struggle not only between like the people in the jail but like within yourself too i guess wow like you're bringing to light so many things like i just like i didn't know all this and that's and that's not a conversation like as a side piece that's not a conversation i felt like i could ever have with anybody in like in that i worked with i couldn't admit that i had anxiety about being confrontational Mm -hmm. because that is a massive part of your job and I didn't want to be viewed as like a weak person or somebody who couldn't live like that job or couldn't do my job wow it sounds like you're like we were talking before about how like how do you find a solution about this but it sounds like you're starting it like just talking about it. Yeah. Making it so people are aware of these situations that people in that that position and that job are facing every day. And that's like that's no the biggest thing for me like being out of that job. Like even when I talk to my friends who were there, like I still get anxious about what goes on. Like if I find out somebody got shit bombed or assaulted, it's like I still, like, I still feel that, like, I resonate with that, because, like, those are still, regardless of whether or not I work for them, or work with them, I did work with them, like, I know what that job takes, I respect the fuck out of anybody who, like, either continues to do it, or chooses to do it, but now that I'm out of that career, and that lifestyle, I am able to have a voice for, like, the officers that, can't speak up for themselves so when Mm -hmm. articles come out and people are ripping on them or whatever like i'll be the first person jump in and be like if you don't know what you're talking about or if you have never worked a day in your life in a correctional facility like you need to shut up and stop being ignorant like educate yourself on what goes on like behind these walls kind of Mm -hmm. thing before you try and tell us that we're not doing our jobs and I will share an article and be like, in my experience, this is what I dealt with, or this is what I've seen, or this is how this, this is how like jail life functions because nobody, 
Like, it's just news that people don't care about. So nobody's going to read it. Nobody's going to see it. Nobody's going to talk about it. And it's just like everything else. Like, people just need to have that education, I guess. I feel that anyways. Like I No, I think that you're absolutely right. Because how else is this going to be start to be solved? Yeah. Like, going back to like coming home and talking about your day like who can really like unless you're in that field who can really connect with you or like empathize or sympathize with you when you come home and like tell somebody that the last three hours of your shift or whatever you had to cut somebody down from a hanging like nobody's going to know what that feels like who works a regular job Mm. but you're friends in the jail know exactly what that feels like because it's just what they see and they know how to help, I guess, as much as they can. Like, Mm -hmm. your best friend or your spouse might be like, oh, wow, like, that's really fucked up. Are you okay? And you're like, I guess. But deep down inside, like, you can't really explain what, like, being in that moment feels like because they're just it's not something a normal person can really comprehend Yeah. because it's incredibly rare. Like if when somebody in everyday life stumbles upon something like that. So I don't know. Yeah. It's like taking an incredibly traumatizing experience and then trying to be like, yeah, it's part of my job. Yeah. Somebody might see it once, maybe twice every five to 10 years. Like if they're, really unfortunate really but it's like as somebody who works in a jail like you i have a really good friend who cut three people down in the span of six months oh my gosh yeah like it's just yeah that's something that yeah that's something that someone's not going to understand unless they've lived through that and even i mean like when she told me and I mean, is she, the person that I'm talking about, my friend, has been dealt with some, like, super shitty hands. So when, like, we talked about it after, I think it was, like, after the last one because it was a really bad one. Um, she kind of took it bad, which, I mean, like, any normal person would. Yeah. But I was like, are you going to be okay? Like, do you need anything? And she's like, no. Like, I just, I've done this a lot. And I just don't really know what to do anymore. Like, it was to a point where it was, like, normal for her. And she could just, like, shrug it off. And I'm like, yeah, I know, like, being in in that career, like, I knew how it felt. But I didn't know how it felt to the degree where it was, like, a normal. And that I didn't know how to react to. Right. So it sounds like people need to be a lot more grateful for what you do. Yeah. And what you've done and people that are still doing that are doing. Yeah. There like I said, it's like it's just a back burner thing that nobody ever really thinks about until it's public. And when it's public nine times out of ten, it makes the staff look bad. Yeah. And it's just... 
not, it's not true. No. Wow. The bravery that you have, like this episode, the previous two episodes, and the things that you've shared with me and our listeners is something that is astounding and that I'm very grateful for because these are things that people don't talk about. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm super grateful for it too. And it, I was thinking about it either this morning or yesterday that in the last six years, I've, I'm in the best place mentally that I've been like, um, and that's wild to me because from high school up until um, Alan's death, it was kind of like I would relapse every two years and it was constant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after Alan died and a bunch of shit went on, like from that point up until I started at the correctional facility, it was kind of just like I was waiting for that other shoe to drop. And I also, and I know like this didn't help my case at all, but it's like, I'm literally recovering from a mental breakdown and I start working in a jail where like our corrections 101 was like one of our management staff coming in and being like, all right, in 10 years, you're going to be addicted to pills. You're going to be an alcoholic. You're going to be in jail for lugging drugs. And if you're with anybody, chances are you'll all be divorced or separated or whatever. And I was like, what the fuck did I just get myself into? (laughs) Wow. Welcome to jail, folks. Like, Oh my gosh. But it was like, my mindset at the time was like, do I put my self, or do I like, do I dodge a career that I've been working for for the last like three years to try and like sort myself out? Or do I take the career that I've worked so hard for, like in that span of the year, despite everything, and just try and find a way to balance the two. And I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. I definitely should have taken the time for me and mm-hmm. sorted my shit out and tried again later. Maybe the end result would have been different. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, like I don't, I don't regret it because I worked with a lot of great people. I really, I was given the opportunity to really like figure out what it takes to like allow me to function like happily and coming back to like where I'm at, like I, the most growth I think that has happened has been in the last year. Like I had, whether or not I feel like it's traumatic, like it was a big deal and it was a traumatic event that happened at work mm-hmm. and that kind of like started turning the gears of me like getting out because it was at that point where it was just like, okay, like if I'm more fearful of getting disciplined for something that I can't control happening at work than I am over my own safety, probably not a good place to be. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, those gears started turning and then I met you and Sean and was given this opportunity where I've like in the past, I've talked about like my struggle with mental health and um, that kind of thing. And I mean, like, it's always gotten a sweet response. I've always had super supportive friends, super supportive family. Um, But at least with this, like, you're coming up on, like, 10,000 plays. 
Like, that's amazing. Like, I don't know 10,000 people. And I mean, <laughs> like, I'm not getting all of those 10,000 plays, but it's like between you and Sean and like my friends, that's so many more people that like are having this talk about mental health and traumatic life events or um, what did I say earlier? Therapeutic activities. Therapeutic like, activities. <laughs> I like that. You have such a wider audience than just my 300 friends on Facebook, a quarter of which might actually give enough of a shit to read my entire post. Like, it's just, it's awesome. And I mean, like, huge credit goes to, like, my girlfriend as well because, like, we both have had, like, a really tough year and there have been times where, I, like, we want to kill each other, like, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. 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 It just <laughs> happens with everybody. She tells me all the time, she's like, I'll fucking kill you. And it's like, great, but I know you still love me at the end <laughs> of the day. But it's like, we can balance, like, our support and our faults um, and our successes off one another and just keep each other motivated. And I, if I was still at the jail, like, I wouldn't have this sweet new job where everybody is or everybody that I've encountered is so fucking supportive. Mm. Like I had a full blown PTSD breakdown at work one day and my supervisor um, came over to me and she let me go out back, which is where like I took the time to myself and it just kind of came over me and it just like broke. But then she came out to check up on me and she was like, holy shit, like if this is what's going on, like go home. Like, just go home, take care of yourself. Don't worry about a doctor's note. Don't worry about anything. Like, just make sure you're okay. Wow. I was like, shit. And she walked me out to my car to make sure I was okay. And then I came back to work. And because I was, like, walked out, which I get, everybody thought I got fired. So I came back to work, and everybody was like, oh, my God, you're still here. Like, it's so good to see you. Like, what Aww. happened? And I was like, what? Like, why wouldn't I be here kind of thing? But the fact that everybody was so stoked to know that, like, I didn't get fired was amazing. Um, and the people, like, the few people who actually, like, saw me upset and kind of, like, asked what happened. And I told them, like, I'm not, I'm at a point where, like, I, I'm not ashamed of it. Like, it's just, it happens. Mm. But they were, like, man, like, good on you for, like, coming back or, like, I hope that like it doesn't happen again and you're going to be okay and it's like this is so weird like yeah the people at the correctional facility were like supportive but it was like it wasn't to that degree like I said like mental health wasn't a thing that people really talked about it was more ridiculed than it was supportive mm -hmm. um but yeah these guys were just like man like you worked in a correctional facility like that's unreal like kudos on you for like knowing that you needed to get out and like find something better and power to you for actually like doing what you did for like however long you did it for and it's like not only am I in like a better job but I'm surrounded by like better people and it's yeah I don't know it's awesome and like I said like this opportunity is wild because there aren't sure Kirsten might kill me or my friends might be like hey like we're always here for you but there's like not I wouldn't really do this in like any other setting 
So I feel honored. <laughs> you should. <laughs> and I, I'm not saying that for me, but like you should feel honored knowing that like this is what you're giving people. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> that uh, means a lot to me. Thank you very much. No problem. I'm not crying. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you again. No Thank you again for just being so open such a good, sweet friend and for coming on here a third time to help again, just like bring more perspective and a voice to these things that aren't talked about. Yeah, totally. It means so much to me. And, um, maybe, maybe we'll be having you back again sometime. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> maybe if my life derails a little bit and I recover, I'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> You just let me know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not, because I'm doing really good. Yeah, fingers crossed that doesn't actually happen. Um, but thank you. And I want to say thanks to all of the listeners. Like, you you helped make this happen. Um, along with Mike, you helped make this happen. And I just, uh, I really appreciate all of the reviews that you've been leaving Optimistically Depressed and the the fact that you're rating it too. Like that just means a lot to me. It helps make this like, I really do believe in what I'm doing and I believe that it helps the world when it's, when these stories like Mike's story and the other stories of the people that I've had the privilege of interviewing are put out there. Like, I think that helps make the world a more informed and better place. And so all of you, that's what you do when you listen. That's what you do when you rate review. That's what you do when you tell a friend. And I'm very grateful to all of you. Keep the fire burning. Keep that fire burning. And, and, uh, and, you know, like, and I say this every time and I mean it every time, just not wherever you are. Like I am sitting here, Mike's sitting here. We're loving you. And, uh, I hope they have a great morning, afternoon, evening, night, and we'll be talking to you again soon. Bye.